Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The main source I'm going to use in helping us try to see our little journey here this evening is the commentary of the great St. Thomas Aquinas on these very lines to help us get to the bottom of it. So, to jump right in, there are two approaches to the world. I'm going to do a little bit of philosophy here with you. And we're going to lead up to then asking them the question about how the cross of Christ fits in. If you set aside divine revelation for a moment, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, we can say there's really two approaches to the world, how you see the world around us, if we're abstracting for a moment from divine revelation and the grace that comes with the teaching of divine revelation. So I'm going to paint a picture for you of two different basic approaches that we might look at. The first one I'm going to characterize, and you right off the bat see there's a kind of negativity here, and I mean, I'm, I'm going to look at a, some text in St. Thomas will help us understand this. The first one is one that fails to see the signs in the world that point outside the world to a creator. This first position fails to see something which, according to St. Thomas, is something that absolutely, indisputably is there, namely, signs in the world around us that point to there being a creator. This one approach does not, we might ultimately even say, will not see those signs that point outside, beyond the world, to a creator. <coughs> And St. Thomas says, what tends to happen then by these people is that they invent their own wisdom. They, that's literally what St. Thomas says. They invent their own wisdom. What does this particularly bring to mind? We're going to be painting with broad strokes here. There's a couple of different examples that we might look at. But consider for a moment, if you will, ladies and gentlemen, a dominant approach of the world in which we live. Where science, I present for your consideration, though I'm not condemning all of science by any stretch of the imagination, major strands in science for some number of generations have bent their energy to come up with an account that will satisfy in some way the human mind as to where humans and the world around us come from. Often this account includes in it key evolutionary aspects. I'm not here arguing necessarily that that means that there is no evolution. But what I'm saying is this. It is very common that we come up with, and I will use St. Thomas's word, invent a worldview that stands in for the true one. Let me give you one example that I find particularly striking. How many people 
look at the natural world, look at something like a flower. And what do they see in that flower? They fundamentally see in that flower perhaps something beautiful. But what do they see in that flower? What passes through their minds? Wow, isn't that something? After millions of years of chance interactions of things, the plants that formed a flower like that, they're the ones that survived. So this ultimate, this flower is ultimately, ultimately the result of chance. I present for your consideration, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be bold. That's inventing wisdom. That is philosophically hogwash. To hold that things that are so obviously not the result of chance, to hold them to be ultimately the result of chance interactions. I present to you that whether absolutely consciously or not, that ultimately is the result of humans on a project to invent for themselves an account that will exclude what is the truth of the source of things. There's a lot more there that we could talk about, and perhaps the question is we can talk a little bit more about that if you're interested. Interestingly, going along with wisdom is a prudence. This first approach, rather than seeing real wisdom, which would have pointed outside the world to higher first causes of it, comes up with some other account, and there's a lot of different forms that that can take. That's the wisdom element. Associated with wisdom is another kind of knowledge, prudence. Watch, wisdom in general is a name for your overarching accounts for the world. Where do things come from? The meaning of life. Prudence is a term that has to do with an understanding of how to live. It's the realm of how will we act as humans. What St. Thomas points out, and it's a beautiful little point, he gets this from Aristotle. You can distinguish between prudence and wisdom, and the two of them are always associated based upon the kind of worldview that one holds, and that's what we're broadly going to call wisdom, whether it's the true wisdom or an invented wisdom, will be the basis for having a corresponding prudence, whether it be a true prudence or an invented prudence. I present for your consideration going hand in hand with invented wisdom, by and large, is an invented prudence. Prudence here being a term that's broadly taking in how we think about human life and how we should act. Very often, ladies and gentlemen, and you don't need me to tell you this, going hand in hand with the dominant secular view of the big picture of where we came from or not, is there a first cause, is there God? Going hand in hand with, a, with various forms of an invented wisdom are various forms of invented morality and various ways of rejecting fundamental truths about what is right and wrong, about what is good and evil, about natural law, are set aside also. So 
we live in a culture, ladies and gentlemen, where the very, which very dramatically illustrates for us this first approach without divine revelation, wherein we invent our own wisdom and we invent a corresponding prudence, meaning an understanding about how we will live as human beings. Now we look at the second approach. The second approach, ladies and gentlemen, is exemplified by the great Greek philosophers. And I'll characterize it in the same terms, but in the opposite terms of what we just were saying. This second approach of how do we look at the world, and we're saying we're abstracting from divine revelation. We're saying without divine revelation, here is another way of looking at the world. We know historically who are three great thinkers who would exemplify what we're talking about right now? Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And they did the exact opposite of each of the points that we just saw. They see the world as full of signs that point to higher realities behind and above what they're directly experiencing. They are constantly finding, not inventing, finding signs, signposts in their experience, in human life, in the natural world, in political life, all around them, constantly discovering. Of course, those who take the first approach will accuse them of inventing or reading in I say to you, discovering. They're discovering the signposts that are there. They did not begin, ladies and gentlemen, with a theological project that they were setting forth to prove. They set out to see what was there, and they saw things as they are, fundamentally, not perfectly. But what did they see? They saw the world as full of the signposts. Let's take a quick peek on your handout at one of my favorite quotations. Some of you have in the room, I know, seen this before because you had occasion to look at it a little bit more. This is one of my favorite dialogues. It's a dialogue written by Plato about Socrates. It's called The Apology, which is about Socrates' trial, where he's found guilty and he's condemned to death. Quick context. The oracle at Delphi had said of Socrates, among men, none is wiser than Socrates. The Oracle Delphi, it is reported, said of Socrates, among men, there is none wiser than Socrates. Right, that's the background for Socrates saying what he says right here in this quotation. What is probable, gentlemen, is that in fact, the God is wise, and that his oracular response meant that human wisdom is worth little or nothing. And then when he says, this man, Socrates, he's using my name as an example, as if he said, this man among you mortals is wisest, who, like Socrates, understands that his wisdom is worthless. 
So even now, I continue this investigation, Socrates goes on, as the god bade me, and I go around seeking out anyone, citizen or stranger, whom I think wise. Then if I do not think he is wise, I come to the assistance of the god and show him that he is not wise. This is a very strange situation, ladies and gentlemen. Some of you again have looked at it before. What, what, what is the kernel here? The bottom line is Socrates is associating wisdom with having the insights in a sense that you're not wise. It sounds like a contradiction. You are wise in as much as you realize that you're not wise. Is this possible? Well, look a little deeper with me for a moment. The truly wise man will have seen so clearly how much more there is to know that he does not know, how much greater a wisdom there is to be had that he does not yet have, that he considers what he does have as worthless compared to what he should have and could have. So the fundamental disposition here, ladies and gentlemen, connected back to seeing the signposts, here I give you is Greek philosophy at its best. Those who see the world, first of all, for what it is, full of signposts, let's just say, to amazing realities within, beyond, above, behind what we're immediately experiencing. There's this incredibly profound sense and insight. There is so much behind. If we're seeing what we're seeing for what it is, we will see that there must be something astounding behind it that we know is there, but we cannot see. And to know that would really be wise. But at least the wisdom that we do have is to recognize that it's there and that we haven't seen it. And that's what you mean by saying you're wise by recognizing that human wisdom, what we can achieve, is so little. Does this make sense? All right. There is a corresponding prudence. Wisdom, prudence always go together. This, I present for your consideration, is a true wisdom. So you will find with it a true prudence. The understanding, we don't, we don't need to go into it in any length. The, mor the moral philosophy of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, not perfect, but it's astounding an absolute priority on justice and rendering what is due, beginning with rendering what is due to the gods. A clear conception of the cardinal virtues, the very same four cardinal virtues that provide a rubric for going through the virtues in Thomas Aquinas and in the Catholic Catechism. They are the ones who develop the understanding of what these four cardinal virtues are. Despite things that you might hear, and there's, sure there's some truth of some things among the Greeks that were problematic, these men by and large had a clear understanding of sexual morality, just to give you that as a very important point. 
they would have held fornication and adultery to be intrinsically evil. Just to give you a few interesting snapshots of here are men when it comes to the realm of prudence, to the realm of how do we think about human action, they thought very clearly, very much like Christianity, as a matter of fact. So interestingly, a, a true wisdom in them goes together with the true prudence. And this, again, is without divine revelation. Again, I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm saying, amazingly, that was able to be achieved. Ladies and gentlemen, I can't overemphasize enough the beauty and importance of the disposition that we find exemplified in them. And that I would put this way, of a humble willingness to hold as true whatever reality shows us is true, whether it matches what we were expecting or wanted or not. Again, I say to you, their fundamental disposition, this is very important for our understanding the big picture here and getting an answer to our question, their fundamental disposition was one of humility where they were willing to take as true whatever, as it were, revealed itself. They did not hold themselves as the arbiters. No, that doesn't make sense. No, that doesn't fit with what I was thinking was the case. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to challenge you here this evening on that. It's a very common problem. Very often, we, we all tend to think when we think of common problem, gee, that must mean a lot of those people out there have it. <laughs> so I'm trying to be polite, ladies and gentlemen, when I say it's a common problem that we often think that we know better than, and then fill in the blank. because we, we, we already have a clear sense of what we think must be the case. The real seeker after wisdom is always, while not, not being a doubter, when he sees the truth, he lands on it, he knows he has it. But at the same time, he's always willing to be surprised and to realize where he was wrong. Spiritual masters point this out. These philosophical masters point it out. And it's going to be central to understanding our whole point about the cross. Note, interestingly here, I want to put notes, an uh, interesting combination of two things that wouldn't seem to go together in the first approach and in the second approach. Look how in the first approach, there's an interesting combination. This, this one that I was saying was exemplified by many in our world. There would have been many in the ancient world like this too. Aristotle and Plato, Socrates, were not typical as though they were running around all over the place, right? I mean, they were unique. They stood out. But then as now, what would be the case of this first approach that doesn't see the world for what it is, thus doesn't have a prudence that it should? In overconfidence in our own worldview, in overconfidence in our own worldview, but combined with a skepticism 
It wouldn't seem that these two things would have gone together. An overconfidence in our own worldview, but a skepticism about the deeper intelligibility of the world. Think about this with me for a moment. This confidence, and again, I'm not condemning all of modern science when I say this, but a view that is dominant, very common. We've got the account for things. We can basically explain where humans have come from and human behavior and the origin of the world. We've got that covered. This kind of overconfidence, we've got that covered. But then this deep skepticism that interestingly isn't interested to really look more deeply into things and to hold that there are deep, higher truths that we can come to that might be the kind of thing we'd want to contemplate. In general, there's a, there's a skepticism about really finding deeper meaning. Great confidence in our, in our worldview. We know, we know where things come from, but a real skepticism about really really having deep insights, the type of things that would be worth contemplating, really finding meaning. So there's strange confidence together with skepticism. Now go over to, to our gentlemen that exemplify approach number two. They don't have an overconfidence in their own view. They actually begin with this profound humility, and they always maintain it. I present the more wise they become, the more humble they become. So they have a great humility about what they can know, always having this growing sense of there's actually much more there to know than we actually know. But note how that is actually combined with a great confidence that there is a deeper wisdom that if we keep trying, we'll find it. Now that seems to be two things that wouldn't necessarily fit together, but they go together. We're humble about not being, oh yes, we see the whole picture. We realize there's a whole, many aspects of the whole picture we haven't seen yet. Does this turn us into skeptics? No, not at all. Actually, we're extremely grateful to have the little bit that we do, and we devote our lives to seeing more deeply because we realize that's what we're designed to do. And that's what we bend all our energies towards. Take a look at the quotation, if you would, in the middle of the first page from Aristotle. The scanty conceptions to which we can attain of celestial things give us from their excellence more pleasure than all our knowledge of the world in which we live. Just as half a glimpse of persons that we love is more delightful than an accurate view of other things, whatever their number and dimension. I've shared that with some of you before. Isn't that an astounding quotation? The scanty conceptions to which we can attain of celestial, celestial literally, etymologically means heavenly, things of heaven. The little bit that we can know of them gives us from their excellence, more pleasure than all our knowledge of the world in which we live. Just as half a glimpse of persons we love is more delightful than an accurate view of other things, no matter how much they are. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there are the two reviews of ways of approaching the world without divine revelation. Now what I want to do is turn to what happens when we are confronted with divine revelation. 
And St. Thomas is going to paint a picture for us of two different ways of responding to divine revelation, and we're going to match it up with what we just saw right here. Note, I am not going to purport to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, what something that's, that, that you, a question that demands to be asked by this provocative text from St. Paul. What would Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle have done if they had been presented with the Christian revelation and presented with Christ on the cross? I'm not going to pretend to tell you I, will, I know what they would have done. Obviously, I don't. But I am going to present for your consideration that their dispositions which we've just talked about, are the dispositions that would have made them and should make you and me most disposed to understand divine revelation. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. For everybody, divine revelation is going to challenge us by bringing before us things that are going to shock us. And we're going to be confronted with the problem of what are we going to do with that? that seems to us, almost no matter what, we're going to come up on things that seem to us crazy for anybody from either of those two camps, that is going to be a moment of crisis. And it still will be a moment of freedom. Take a peek if you, with me, if you will, at the big quotation at the bottom of the first page from St. Thomas. This is, is going to paint a, a very interesting picture for you. You'll see what's going on, so let's just jump in. You'll see it's behind a couple of things we've been talking about. For divine wisdom, when making the world, left indications of itself in the things of the world. As it says in Sirach, he poured wisdom out upon all his works. Isn't that beautiful? He poured wisdom upon all his works. So that creatures made by God's wisdom are related to God's wisdom whose signposts they are, as a man's words are related to his wisdom, which they signify. Did you pick that up, pick that up in the technical terminology? Creatures are to God's wisdom as the words of a wise man are to that wise man's wisdom. As a wise man shows his wisdom by what he says, God showed his wisdom by what he made. He wrote it, literally, into it. And just as a disciple reaches an understanding of the teacher's wisdom by the words he hears from him, so man can reach an understanding of God's wisdom by examining the creatures he made. Isn't that beautiful? Quoting another line from St. Paul, his invisible nature has been clearly, clearly perceived in the things that have been made. But on account of the vanity, St. Thomas goes on, but on account of the vanity of his heart, man wandered from the right path of divine knowledge. Hence it is said, he was in the world and the world was made through him, and yet the world knew him not. Do, do, do you know the, the neat thing St. Thomas just did right there with that passage from the first chapter of St. John, where it said he was in the world, but the world knew him not? In general, you associate that, but with Christ is in the world, and we know him not. It can mean that too. But St. Thomas was saying, God put himself in the world. 
screaming out to us, literally speaking unto us, here I am. And what wisdom have men made unto themselves? They have thrown it away and they invented for themselves. They invented for themselves an understanding of the natural world that would directly contradict the truth of it and make it seem as though he weren't speaking to us in it. Consequently, God brought believers to a saving knowledge of himself by other things which are not found in the natures of creatures. Now, this is, watch, watch how St. Thomas so, so winningly paints for you God who's trying to get our attention and teach us. Consequently, because men said no, they wouldn't, weren't seeing it, God brought believers to a saving knowledge of himself by other things which are not found in the natures of creatures, on which account Worldly men who derived their notions solely from human things considered them foolish, things such as the articles of faith. It is like a teacher who recognizes that his meaning was not understood from the words he employed and he tried to use other words to indicate what he meant. Isn't that great? It's almost cute sense of God saying, <laughs> All right, well, let's try this. I don't mean to be facetious, but I mean in, in, in the spirit of God knows what he's trying to do here. And by golly, he's trying. All right. There's a couple of beautiful texts here of explaining to us what those who are going to accept this new way look like and what those who are not going to accept this new way look like. Let's look at these next several, number 47, number 58, and number 62, which are the top of page 2. And here, St. Thomas is going to explain to for us the difficulty that those who are not going to believe and these are people that we will especially associate with the first view that we saw before to the natural world, before we were even talking about divine revelation. Look here, and I present for you the real drama here is, are we willing in humility to accept something as true that's beyond what we would have expected? Look at how he first of all has top of the page, backside there, page two. <clears throat> Christ's cross appears foolish to them indeed who perish, that is, to unbelievers, who consider themselves wise according to the world. For the preaching of the cross of Christ contains something which to worldly wisdom seems impossible. For example, that God should die or that the all-powerful should suffer at the hands of violent men. Furthermore, that a person not avoid shame when he can, and other things of this sort are matters which seem contrary to prudence, the prudence of this world. Now, here's the neat thing. Note how this is dividing up. It's matching up with what we saw before. Note how you see the same disposition, the same disposition that we saw in that first approach that is one that is not willing 
to be molded by what's there, but rather is intending, it's too wedded to what our view already is, both as regards wisdom and as regards prudence. Note them both here. It's to these, this way of thinking, it seems impossible. And you can appreciate this, Ezra, you can appreciate there is something that seems outlandish about that God should die or that the all-powerful should suffer at the hands of violent men. Just as regards our, the wisdom aspect, the big worldview, how could such a thing happen? So our disposition said, well, <laughs> how, how could such a thing have been done? Doesn't, doesn't seem to fit. As regards our, our prudence, a way of thinking about how people should live, the prudence versus wisdom thing, Furthermore, that a person should not avoid shame when he can, and other things of this sort, are matters which seem contrary to prudence, the prudence of this world. Go on to the second one. Unto the Gentiles' foolishness, because it seemed against the nature of human reason that God should die, and that a just and wise man should voluntarily expose himself to a very shameful death. Finally, our third one. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, as if to say, look at this one, something divine seems to be foolish, not because it lacks wisdom, but because it transcends human wisdom. For men are wont inclined. Men are wont to regard as foolish anything beyond their understanding. Here's a man of insight. That's, that he, he, he's drawing it together for us right there, isn't he? This right here, ladies and gentlemen, I present for consideration. We can already right now make a major conclusion. Is the cross of Christ ultimately foolishness? Right here, he's given us the key. The cross of Christ transcends, it absolutely does, it transcends human wisdom. What we naturally would have gathered doesn't give us the principles to immediately say, oh yes, that makes sense. That's the point. It doesn't contradict human wisdom, but it does transcend it. It transcends what we naturally would have been able to gather. Put that together with the fact that we tend to see as foolish anything that is beyond what we ourselves can grasp and understand. We have the combination that makes us call these things foolish. I present for your consideration the men of the second type, ladies and gentlemen, are already well disposed to not have that happen. Does Socrates pop into your mind when he says here, men are wont to regard as foolish anything beyond their understanding? Socrates is a man who was well disposed to consistently say, I know the best things, keep being beyond my understanding. Maybe here's another. Which brings us now to the two texts about those who are going to receive it. In the middle of that page. And lest someone believe that, in fact, 
the word of the cross does contain foolishness, he adds, but to them who are saved, that is to us, namely Christ's faithful who are saved by him, he will save his people from their sins. It is the power of God because they recognize in the cross of Christ God's power by which he overcame the devil and the world. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, as well as the power they experience in themselves when together with Christ they die to their vices and concupiscences. As it says in Galatians, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Mr. Jemmy is painting a fascinating picture here for us, or what should believers look like? Are we in this group who are going to be able to transcend human wisdom and accept the cross for what it is? What do we find there? The power they experience in themselves when together with Christ they die to their vices and concupiscences. See, the thing that he particularly is pointing here to is we actually experience the cross of Christ as ultimately fitting. It transforms our life. It helps us be what we are called to be. Look at the next text. Further to those who believe, versus the Jews who made a stumbling block of Christ's weakness, St. Thomas says, they recognize the power of God in Christ's cross by which devils are overcome, sins forgiven, and men are saved. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. Versus the Greeks who see foolishness, what does St. Thomas say? They, believers, those who are, are going to respond to the gift of grace here, they recognize, how are they going to transcend human wisdom to see the truth here? They also recognize in it the wisdom of God. If we're willing to transcend what we naturally could have known, we actually discover in the cross of Christ a higher wisdom, the wisdom of God, inasmuch as he delivered the human race in a most becoming manner by the cross. Men were taught what pleases you and were saved by wisdom. So what do we have here, ladies and gentlemen? Notice the very important aspect of experiencing the moral power of the cross. If we approach the cross of Christ and the teaching with humility and allow it to transform our lives, we actually will discover most of all when we are trying to conform our lives to it, that's where we will actually see this is more wise. This is more powerful than anything we've seen. We overcome evil. We overcome our weaknesses. We find joy when by faith 
we receive a teaching that is a hard teaching, when we're willing to say, I don't see why I have to carry the cross, I don't see why Christianity needs to say to me, at the center of your religion is suffering. If we are willing to say, I don't see why this should be the case, but we start to live it. St. Thomas is saying, through grace, we will experience the power of God, the wisdom that he has shown in the cross by bringing us to where we wanted to go, but in fact, never would have been ever able to find our way. Moving towards wrapping up here, look, if you will, at the quotation at the bottom of the page, I mean the last one here from St. Thomas, a key conclusion from St. Thomas. The chief element in the doctrines of the Christian faith is salvation affected by the cross of Christ. Isn't it remarkable? that St. Thomas right there is saying, what is at the epicenter of Christianity? This is a very bold statement, ladies and gentlemen. Something that the Greeks, those great Greek men that we have so much respect for, they were so humble, at the center of Christianity is something that absolutely transcended what they could have seen. And it's what's on the wall at the back of the room. Not only that someone is dying, but that someone insists that we die too. Says St. Thomas, is the central doctrine of Christianity. The central teaching of Christianity is this one that transcends human wisdom, but is ultimately, and we will only find this out by living it, if we are not willing to live it, we will never see it, is in fact, is in fact, the only true wisdom. So at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, what do we take away from what St. Paul is telling us here? If we would want to know what does God, when his teaching through the natural world falls short, when it doesn't bring about in us what it should have, or even go further, even in the good men in whom the teaching of the natural world didn't fall short, and it brought them to where they should have, to either one, to ones from group one who were saying no, for whom the natural teaching didn't work, those in group two who have been humble and been receptive, for either one, what is the ultimate teaching, the ultimate challenge, the ultimate teaching that God most wants us to see is that, is the cross of Christ. So I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, do we want to know who God is? Then we must understand the cross? Do we want to understand 
who we are, then we must understand the cross. Do we want to know how we should live? Then we must understand the cross. Know that we just moved from the wisdom to the prudence. Do we want to understand how to preach to others the truth about their own happiness? It's not going to be by teaching them Aristotle. It's going to be by preaching a God who is crucified. For that is the teaching. That will be the key to the new evangelization. That is ultimately the only wisdom that is truest wisdom. That God died for us and our only way to be conformed to him is for us to to join him on the cross. If I may just conclude, I was thinking as I was, I was driving up today, I said to myself, boy, it's the solemnity of St. Joseph. It really just seems there ought to be some way of including St. Joseph in considering the mystery of the cross, but it's, it, it would seem that that was just one mystery that St. Joseph didn't really get to participate in. And then I had the following thought. If you wouldn't mind, I'd just like to conclude by sharing this little imagination that I had. That I, had. I pictured one day St. Joseph and our Lord, maybe as, a, maybe as, a, as an 18-year-old, no, a, young, a young man, and they're working together in the shop. To St. Joseph, is he aware of the mystery of the cross? I find myself thinking. This is a man who knows scripture. There must have been certain things in that home of Nazareth that were very well known, but weren't very often spoken of. And I just wonder whether one day as they were working, Maybe a shadow fell upon the wrist of our Lord, for instance, maybe in a certain way. And Joseph looked at that. And looking at that, something came over him. And he just said, excuse me, son, I'm going to go get a cup of water. And he left. And our Lord, being a very sensitive young man, knows that something's up. His dad doesn't come back for a little while, and he goes out of the room, and he goes into the other room, and he comes upon Joseph weeping, just weeping. And our Lord goes over to him and says, Hey, Dad, Dad. And Joseph looks up, and the tears are just pouring down his face. Tears are just pouring down Joseph's face, and he looks at his son, and he says, you know what, son? I just wish I could be there. And I pictured that young man looking into his father's eyes and is saying, Daddy, I want to tell you something. I walk like you do. I talk like you do. I work like you do. 
I hold my head high in this world like you taught me to. And I'll tell you one thing, Dad. There's no place I'll ever go where you won't be there with me. I'm convinced Joseph lived the mystery of the cross every day of that good man's life. Thanks for your attention. Professor, it would seem to me that Sophocles was a prefigurement of Christ in that he did not seek the poison he sought to say the truth no matter what. Would you agree? I, I, I would. I would say that Socrates is, 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 is a, I, mean, I, I, I suppose one could overdo that, but uh, I, I don't think it is overdoing it to say there are key parallels. Now, there are, by saying there are key parallels is not denying that there are certain things in Christ that absolutely transcend what went on in Socrates. But there was a, there, the key dispositions there are, are, are beautiful images, are beautiful vestiges of a same approach in our Lord, one that puts truth first, one that puts the common good over my individual good, one that puts the centrality on teaching. One of the things I particularly enjoy as a philosophy teacher is, is to watch Socrates teach. I'll just let me share a quick an anecdote. We were reading a, a neat dialogue where you get to watch Socrates in action in a question and answer. And you can, if you, it's not immediately evident, but after reading the dialogue a number of times, you get to know Socrates. What you see going on in Socrates is he understands where the student, the one he's speaking to, he understands where the one he's speaking to is better than how, where that man understands where he is. But ever so gently, ever so carefully, he applies the medicine that is most likely to bring that person to the truth. And often that includes not trying to do too much. And, and so, so in any case, there's, there's some, again, beautiful parallels um, that you can see even, even in methods of teaching there that I think are very worth noting. Thanks for that question. Hi, Dr. Kutterback. Uh, so um, I was just curious if it's okay to ask a question about the end of uh, paragraph 47 from Aquinas' commentary. It basically, in the translation I'm reading here, basically says, uh, it's talking about Luke 16, and it says, virtue went out and healed them all. So in the, in, in the RSV it says, uh, his power went out and healed them all. It's talking about Christ. So just thinking about the word virtue and what you said about uh, uh, Joseph, I wonder if you could comment on the use of the word virtue by uh, Aquinas here. Okay, well, there's always a lot interesting going on etymologically. You can, you can learn a lot from studying the, the languages. I'm not, a, not a, a linguistic scholar at all, but it is interesting that the, the word for virtue is also a word for power. And so, it, 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 I think there's a beautiful connection between the power of the cross. What ultimately is the power 
the main power that Christ is, is sharing with us. Note how even for some of the quotations we looked at, the power of God that transforms us. We're not most of all interested in the power as healing bodily ills, even raising a body to life, but the power that transforms your life. Maybe we had an addiction, and by the grace of God, that addiction is no more. That's an incredible power at work. The growth in virtue, virtue itself, is a power. It's a sign of God's power. God healing us and bringing us by his power to the state of, of being powerful in virtue. We might connect that to, to St. Joseph, a silent man, but a profoundly powerful man in his virtue. Just a thought. Thank you for that. Thank you for that question. Uh, yes, Professor. In your example of invented, uh, in, invented morality and the rights and wrongs, can you place what is you know, the common occurrence now of relativism? Uh, can you make an association with that inventedness and inven in, invented um, uh, prudence as well, that leading toward, to relativism? That, that, that is yes. the case. Yes, you are thinking as I want you to be thinking. In, 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 in other words, what, you, what, what you're seeing is, I mean, both on the level of, of what Aristotle would call speculative knowledge, the, 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 the wisdom versus prudence. Wisdom, what is our account of the way things are? We are inclined in our, what was, what was the um, word from St. Thomas of man in his... Um, I'm losing the word man in his vanity. Man in his vanity. Our selfishness. Our putting ourselves first. There's, it, there's a lot of reasons that we might want to deny that there is a God. And so th th we, we, in our vanity, put ourselves first. We, as one Greek thinker did, a very different kind of Greek thinker, said that man is the measure of things. That's the exact opposite of the ones we're looking at. This is another Greek view. Man is the measure of things. You make the, we make ourselves the measure of things as regards the wisdom. We'll say where the world has come from and now. We'll come up with our need to count for this that basically has man be at the center and doesn't challenge us by holding that there is a God who caused us. And then go over to the realm of, of the prudence. Man will be the measure of things. If man is the measure, then in general, my desires end up being the measure. And if my desires are the measure, that's another name for relativism. Because everyone's desires are different. And then you may do whatever you, you want to do. But we make a theory of it. And we, and, we, and we teach it. We put it in books and we present it to children and invite them to clarify their own desires and not to judge other people for following their desires. We make a system of it in our vanity rather than accepting what was unto our own happiness that nature demanded of us that we recognize there is a right and a wrong for our good. Which, and, and, that's, and, that, and that's the beginning. And note how connected that is then to the, the real powerful one of likewise then rejecting 
that we have to die to ourselves like unto Christ on the cross to find happiness. But yes, relativism is, is, is kind of a central instance of a fabricated prudence. Thank you very much, Dr. Kodak. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.